Welcome to episode three of the Full Count Podcast. I'm Jack Curry. I'm joined by David Cohn. And David, we're up to your Mets career. And you're traded to the New York Mets. They have just won the 1986 World Series. And you're a kid from Kansas City who is a little worried about how you're going to fit in and, and whether or not you'll even fit in at the major league level. Maybe they're going to send you to the minors. Yeah, I really had no clue, uh, no information. Uh, walked into the Mets clubhouse in St. Petersburg uh, back then when the Mets spring trained over there and uh, really didn't say boo the first week or so. Uh, you know, it was an intimidating clubhouse. It was the 86 Mets, you know, Keith Hernandez, uh, Ron Darling, Dwight Good, and Daryl Strawberry. I was in, in awe of those guys. And, you know, I was still kind of uh, listening to what Dan Quisenberry had taught me back with the Royals of play the rookie role. Um, you know, people are watching you. Uh, don't mess up. And, and so I, I was very intimidated. Didn't really know what to make of uh, my chances to be able to make that team. But had about a week to, to make it work and had a couple of good appearances. My first one was, was a good one. I think I struck out five out of six batters in my first appearance with the Mets. And Davey Johnson almost rushed halfway to the mound to shake my hand, and he was the manager of the Mets at the time. And I thought, well, I, this is pretty good, so maybe I do have a chance to make this team. And, and sure enough, I, you know, I was on the opening day roster. We all know how raucous those 1986 Mets were. There have been books written about that topic. How do you fit in? Do, do, you, do you become one of the guys? What, what was your method of uh, obviously trying to succeed on the field but also getting along with these guys who – who played and traveled with a lot of swagger. They had tons of swagger. Um, I tried to fit in the best I could. I mean, I tried to show a loose side. You tried to show that you, you, know, that you could have fun. Um, you know, in spring training is a little more difficult uh, because you know, the, it's, it's not like you're hanging out off the field a lot during spring training. When the season starts and when the team goes on the road, that's when you kind of build camaraderie. It's when, where are we going tonight for dinner? Or if you have a day game after that game, you maybe get 10 or 15 guys together and go out and have dinner and maybe, uh, you know, have a couple of beers, you know, and get to know each other. So, uh, you know, spring training, I was very quiet. Once the season started, I kind of started to open up a little bit and hang out with some of the guys and, uh, you know, look for advice and, uh, you know, that, that was a tough group. That was uh, Nothing was sacred in that group. And they would say anything to you to cut you down a size. And uh, I certainly had my moments. You had a little bit of a slap in the face or a scared straight kind of moment on a plane with Bob Ojeda a after a game. What was that experience like and what were the details on that? Well, there was usually a card game uh, that, that would go on, you know, diff different different players would break off into fours and, you know, play a different card game, whether it was hearts or... Yeah, you know, some guys play bridge, some guys play poker. Um, so I was playing cards. I was in the back of the plane with Bobby Oida, and I mentioned something to him about uh, something, one play he had during the card game, kind of, you know, a, a playful little jab. And then uh, he unleashed on me about, you know, I'd just given up, I think, a grand slam or a big home run to Barry Bonds. And, uh, you know, I didn't really have that good of a game. One of my first games as a Met. And, uh, and uh, he really unleashed on me about how badly I had performed. And, uh, and I was a little taken back by it. And I just kind of took it because I was the rookie. And I, I asked him, I said, I get on you about a card move you made and you get on me about performance? Isn't that, uh, isn't that, that kind of sacred? Why do you take it to that level? And he said, because cause we need to know if we can trust you. And you're being tested. And uh, you failed that test tonight. And uh, I think he, was, he wanted to see how I would react. And you know, I kind of took it and said, okay, 
fine, I'm the rookie, I'll take it. And But I never forgot that. I never forgot how tough the veterans could be on some of the young players. And I, for me, it was motivation. It was like, all right, I'll show you next time. And, you know, it, it served as a motivator to me where I could see in a lot of cases that kind of tough – Tough love could work in the opposite direction for some players. Uh, it wouldn't have worked with somebody like Sid Fernandez or somebody that, with a little different personality that might not uh, be used to that kind of tough love. You say it, it stayed with you. Did you find motivation from it? Was there some anger attached to that? Was there a better way to do that? How did you view that? Uh, a little bit of both. You know, I thought, okay, this is the way it is, and you know, I need to accept that. And I, also, part of me said, you know what, I don't agree with this either. And then when I become a veteran, if I ever get in that position, I would do it differently. Um, and I tried to on down the road, although I'm sure there were times where I was just like Bobby O to maybe a young player, you know, ten years later. But. Uh, yeah, I did. I used it as motivation. I used it as kind of a wake-up call. Like, oh, okay, um, you know, th this is serious, and you know, my job is on the line here, and I, I still need to prove myself as a rookie in the big leagues. You describe in the book as two teammates who, who really showed you the ropes: Ron Darling and Keith Hernandez. Let's start with Darling. Why was he so influential in your career? I think you know. Uh, Ron was always an interesting character. He was obviously very smart, uh, came out of Yale. Um, I think some of the players probably looked at him as maybe even a little bit of an elitist at times, uh, you know, uh, maybe almost that too smart or intimidated by his intelligence. But I, I wanted to learn from him, and I think he saw that. He saw that natural curiosity in me. He also saw kind of some goofiness too, you know, some of the – some of the things I tried to do to fit in early, early uh, in my Mets career, whether it was on the plane, trying to slide down the aisle on a plastic sheet, try, well, we called it surfing. It's in the book, obviously. Everybody does that. Come yes, on. Yes, <laughs> and uh, it caught some people off guard, right? You know, if you time it just right, right when you, uh, right when you land, it'll propel you forward, you know, and it's almost like you're skateboarding or surfing right down the aisle. And I made it about halfway down the plane and uh, at a pretty high speed. And so I, I think that opened some eyes to some you know, this guy's, you know, this kid's, you know, got some personality. He's also a little off center. So uh, maybe that did fit in. But Darling was the guy who kind of took me under his wing and, and taught me, okay, let's go shopping. He bought me my first navy blue blazer, taught me how to dress like a big leaguer. You know, we, you had to wear sport coats on the plane and slacks, no jeans. A lot of guys wore ties and suits. And uh, so that, that, that was the first step. I really had no wardrobe at that point. I'm in the big leagues and you got to, you got to take charter flights, and you got to you got to have some wardrobe. And Darling kind of took me out and took me under my under his wing and showed me the ropes, and and then also showed me a little bit of New York City too. Um, took me out to a, rest, a few restaurants in New York City, along with Keith Hernandez and Rusty Staub, and uh, they kind of showed me how to love New York City and not be not be intimidated by it. And from a pitching perspective, you you talk in the book about how. Darling wouldn't give up on his splitter, and it amazed you sometimes that it looked like that was a lost pitch, but he would continue throwing it to regain it, and, and that impacted you and, and your pitching style. It really did. Uh, you know, Ronnie was a never-say-die, never-give-in type of a style, and it's even on days when he didn't have his good stuff. And uh, when, when Ronnie had his good stuff in, in his early Mets days, he had a good fastball. He threw pretty hard, actually, the low 90s, and so he could mix up his pitches pretty well, but on the days he didn't have his good stuff was when I really took note about a guy who just never gave in and kept throwing splitters and kept trying to hit the edges and throw quality strikes with his pitches and never panicked. And I, you know, I think even if he walked a couple of guys, he never he never showed that he was in trouble, and uh, that really impressed me as a young pitcher. Is 
boy, on the days when you don't have your good stuff, how you can make something out of it and keep your team in the game was really an important lesson to learn for any young pitcher. And as you're a young pitcher, how comforting is it to have over your left shoulder Keith Hernandez and the leader that he was? Keith was great. I think he was another one that saw some potential in me, and uh, he really was active during the games. When I was on the mound pitching, I could hear him yelling at me, or he would come to the mound and pump me up and really showed a lot of confidence in me and uh, kind of walked me through different steps. And if there was a key moment during the game, he would yell at me, and I'd look at him, and he'd pump his fist at me or, or tell me, pitch this guy in, this guy can't beat you, or just little things like that that he would say uh, during the game uh, were just incredible. I, you know, I've said this, and most people that play with Keith Hernandez know that during the game, when he was in the game, he was one of the most active players I've ever been around, always one step ahead, always encouraging, very much of a leader uh, on the field uh, as far as uh, you know, just, just really being involved in the game. And and the man who gave your your down under slider a name, right? Laredo. He was the one shouting Laredo from first base. Yeah, they loved it. That was the first team I had been on. That you know, I, I think that one of my first appearances, I dropped down on Jack Clark, big big first baseman who had hurt the Mets a lot with his power. And I threw a sidearm slider that started right at his right hip and broke over the inside corner. And the umpire called it strike three. And they threw it around the infield. And Wally Backman was laughing with the glove in front of his face. And Keith Hernandez was just, they just lit up that I actually threw a sidearm slider and they encouraged it. And uh, that was the first time I'd really been on, been around a group of players that actually encouraged me to be myself. And, uh, you know, that, that was liberating for me. One of the chapters in the book that I, I loved working on the most was the relationship between pitchers and catchers, and we called it the dance with catchers. It's actually one of the longer chapters in the book. Gary Carter, you, you talked about how as a young pitcher coming over, and here's this established catcher, future Hall of Famer, but the support was there, and the enthusiasm was endless. It really was. I mean, Gary was a great guy. Um he never big-leagued anybody that I've ever been around. By big-leagued, I mean, you know, that he talked down to or he was condescending to. He was quite the opposite. Uh, Gary was a good soul, and uh, uh, he really was encouraging with young pitchers. And if you think about it, he was the catcher who developed Dwight Gooden and Sid Fernandez and some of those young pitchers, and even Ron Darling when he first came over. Uh, he was the guy behind the plate. And, uh, you know, the the further removed I get from having Gary my rookie year, the more I appreciate that that was a lucky draw on my part because he was so patient and he was so teaching and, and, and nurturing. Um, the, he was uh, just a remarkable guy, a Hall of Fame catcher, and uh, I was lucky to have him my rookie year. What were some of the things that went so right for you that allowed you to blossom the way that you did in 88 and, and winning 20 games? Um, I, you know, I think having the experience of 87 with the Mets, as I said, from the first day on, they, they loved my style. They encouraged me to be me. They didn't try to change me at all. Um, you know, uh, obviously, I, I mean, I had some injuries that year, too. I got hit by a pitch by Atley Hammaker that, that shattered the pinky on my pitching hand. So just the minute I, I start to establish myself in a big league rotation, I get hurt again. And uh, so I missed... You know, a couple of months and came back at the end of the year and got some valuable experience down the stretch in 87. Even though we lost, we had a pennant race. The Cardinals knocked us out. There was no wild card back then, uh, but it was great experience down the stretch. So 
I showed up the next spring with the benefit of that experience and felt like I, you know, I was ready to go. I was ready to take the next step. You're listening to the Full Count Podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes. We are very interested in hearing your feedback, so don't forget to do that. And as we've mentioned in every episode, we're going to give away one autographed book in each episode. So for episode three, you have to answer this trivia question. Now, once you have the answer, go to Yes Network on Twitter. Give us both the answer and hashtag Full Count Podcast. We're going to make this question a little more difficult than some of the others we've asked in the other episodes. After David wins his 20th game in 1988 at Shea Stadium, what person met him in the dugout? Now, I don't mean a coach or a teammate. There was some well-known figure who met David in the dugout. We haven't given you the answer on the episode. Maybe we'll sneak it in later, or maybe you just have to do a little research. So, David, the end of 88, you pitch in the NLCS, and you talk in the book, and this is some of the most riveting copy in the book about how you learned how tough you had to be because of what happened before game two. You, 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 ghost, you were the ghostwriter of a column in the Daily News with Bob Clappish, and you criticized the Dodgers. You criticized Earl Hershiser. You criticized Jay Howell. And, boy, talk about a team using that as a rallying cry. They, they really came back before game two and made sure you knew they, they weren't happy with what was written. Yes, I mean, it was pre-internet days, but it got across the wire, and so the Dodgers had plenty of copies of that newspaper article. I think they had a, a hundred copies plastered on their dugout wall when I walked uh, walked out to the mound to pitch game two of that NLCS, and uh, I was never so nervous in my life. I mean, I was clearly impacted by the story and feeling embarrassed that, that I'd become part of a story that had nothing to do with the game that was going to that was going to give the Dodgers a rallying cry. And uh, I knew I was in trouble. Uh, when I walked out to the mound, my legs were heavy. It felt like I, they weren't working properly. It was the first time that physically I was so nervous that it impacted me. Uh, the ability to throw a baseball, the ability to even walk to the mound, uh, to repeat my delivery, I was clearly compromised and uh, so nervous and so overcome by, by the moment. Uh, and realizing... That uh, you know that that it was a big screw up. That it was something that that was going to haunt me. And here we are, all these years later, still talking about it. I was about to say, thirty years later, you did come back and pitch very well in Game Six. And you talk in the book about how that taught you what toughness was. And almost nothing later in your life was going to be as tough on the field. But I think there's a part of you. I've heard Keith Hernandez say this, that feels as if the Mets the Mets let that series get away because you had dominated the Dodgers that series, winning 11 out of 12, that season, winning 11 out of 12. Yeah, I, I mean, even though uh, I ended up losing game two in L.A., we, we split the first two games on the road at Dodger Stadium. So when we came back to Shea in the middle of that series, we're still in good shape and, and actually uh, had a chance to, uh, to kind of close it out at, at home and then uh, – Kirk Gibson had a couple of great games. Uh, you know, the Dodgers just never, never would die. They were a resilient team and a very gritty team. I think our team, talent-wise, was better, but uh, there was something about that team. Gibson and Hershiser were just so gritty and so good. They led that team, and you know, it's 
Yeah, it's it's still considered a pretty big upset that the the Dodgers knocked us out. But as you saw, the Dodgers also took out the Oakland A's, who were a very powerful team that year as well, to win the World Series championship. But yeah, it was. It was something that I, you know, I had two choices: either stand up in front of your locker after Game Two and that debacle and the whole newspaper column uh, issue with Bob Clappish. Um, you know, or I could run and hide in the trainer's room and, and, and just deny that it ever happened or blame it all on Clappish. So I had a quick decision to make, and I decided to be accountable. I decided to stand up in front of my locker and take the heat and take responsibility. And uh, I think that was a real turning point early in my career, not only for myself and, and, the, and, and my team, but also uh, with the media, with regards to the media. I think they saw somebody who was under extreme duress that, that took it, that stood up in front of his locker and, uh, and you know, took the heat. As we look at your Mets career, it would be impossible not to talk about Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. And you mentioned in the book how just the youth and the talent, the blend of those two guys and, and being able to watch some of the amazing things that they did. I don't think you'll we've ever seen two more talented teenagers. If you're thinking 19, 20 years old, right in that range, um, I've never seen anybody with that much talent at that age. And even in today's game, I mean, if you think of Glaber Torres, who's 21 years old, or maybe uh, Acuna Jr. Uh, with, 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 the, uh, with the Braves, are very talented players, but Strawberry and Doc were as talented and uh, larger than life than any, any young players I've ever been around. You didn't want to get traded from the Mets, but you end up getting traded to Toronto, and, and you're the hired gun, and you, you helped the Blue Jays win a World Series in 1992, and you relished being that guy. You, you didn't mind being the guy who came in and had a lot of pressure on him. No, I didn't. I, I kind of um, I sensed how I was received in Toronto by the clubhouse, by everybody in that clubhouse. Um, you know, that it was the right place at the right time for me to be. You know, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I know it now, and... Uh, you know, Toronto was trying to get over the hump. Uh, they just couldn't beat the ace. Uh, they were close so many times to breaking through. Uh, they had never been in a World Series, much less won a World Series. So I knew that there was a lot of pressure for me, but it was also uh, something that, that uh, you know, I looked at head on and, and as, a, as a big challenge and, and something that, that it was the only way to look at it, that it was another huge challenge that you had to overcome and you had to uh, rise up to and, you know, I, it, it felt good. He, the more I got into it, it felt right. It felt, uh, you know, like this was a tremendous opportunity to help the country of Canada get over the hump, so to speak. You get the ring on your finger, you're a free agent, and you end up going back to Kansas City and signing a three-year, $18 million deal with a, a $9 million signing bonus, which was unprecedented at that point. And a lot of that had to do with your relationship with then-owner Ewan Kaufman. It really was. I mean, he was um, a remarkable man, a self-made billionaire um, that was great in the Kansas City community. To this day, his legacy is still felt and some of the charities that he developed in that area. Uh, he wanted the team to stay local. Um, and uh, he was a great salesman. He basically sold me uh, on coming back home. He told me I was the worst trade that he'd ever he'd ever allowed to be make, made and uh, that he wanted to to make right. He wanted me to come back home. And, uh, of course that kind of financial offer, uh, you know, stands alone at that time. And, uh, I think that, that's a hard thing to turn down when you're a free agent, you want to, you want to feel wanted and you, you want to obviously get the best offer as you can for your security from a financial standpoint. But Ewan Kaufman was 
as good a salesman as I've ever been around. And uh, he was dying of cancer at the time, too. So he took the time to come to Louisville, Kentucky, where the winter meetings were that year in 1992. And, uh, you know, under duress, he was obviously very sick at the time, but still thought it was important enough to come and meet me face to face and try to sell me on coming back to KC. And it was, it was a remarkable meeting with a remarkable man. You win a Cy Young for the Royals in the uh, abbreviated 1994 season. Where, where is that plaque? Where, where, where does that mm. hardware sit these days? Well, I gave it to my dad, and uh, it sits in his living room. And he has it up on the wall. And when he watches baseball games, that he st- to this day he still watches probably every night a, a game. He, he loves watching the Yankees. He'll watch the Royals. Um, you know, it's it's right there in his TV room where he can look at it. That's a perfect place for it, and David just gave me a perfect segue. When we come back on Episode 4, you need to tune in. David Cohn visits the Yankee Universe. <laughs> 